listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. redesign production to achieve new flexibility in function, scheduling, and employment. Companies juggle just-in-time deliveries, adopted more standardized parts and processes, redeployed production to more competitive contractors, and constantly recalibrated their redesign by analyzing benchmark measures of input, output, and throughput. The best-known benchmark was Toyota's 57 second minute, the time assembly workers spent in motion every 60 seconds. The workforce saw fewer jobs with more skills, increasing contingent and part-time employment, and round-the-clock production schedules. Enthusiasts called it teen production, and other industries adopted many lean practices. In a 1982 settlement, Ford agreed to give 30 days notice before outsourcing union work to give locals time to make a counteroffer. The companies also insisted on the team concept designed the worker commitment to company success by getting workers to team up with supervisors to find ways to cut cost and increase production. The team concept meant reducing work rules. In 1985, the UAW signed an agreement covering GM's new Saturn plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee, featuring team management, job classifications, collapsed into a few general titles, and pay rates at 80% of the company's base, supplemented to 100% or more with performance incentives. The steel industry was in worse shape than the auto, hit by dumping foreign companies selling surplus production at under cost. By 1982, the industry was running 40% of capacity. Another 100,000 still jobs had gone. The seven largest companies demanded $6 billion in concessions in that year's master still agreement negotiations. The union agreed to $2.5 billion in concessions if the companies put savings into modernization. It was the last industry-wide contract. Steel companies imported semi-finished steel. When Armco asked a Houston local to roll foreign billets, the union refused, and Armco shut the plant. Many mills spread with small electric furnaces producing specialty items, about half non-union. All went without the overhead of pension and unemployment benefits carried by older, larger companies. Over the next few years, LTO merged with Republic Steel and went bankrupt 
Warren Stillmakers acquired about a quarter of the country's integrated and the profitable North Carolina-based non-union mini-meal company, Nucor, expanded. The 1986 agreement allowed individual concessions as loans to employers. Even the labor aristocrats in the construction unions lost ground. More and more contractors operated as open shops and more and more construction workers were not union members. The carpenters lost nearly 70,000 members in just four years. In 1977, the National Contractors Association got the laborers to pledge not to strike and to let management get crew size and dismiss employers at will. In 1984, Hormel threatened to close its Ottumwa, Iowa plant and got concessions from the union, then demanded other plants match them. Local P9 at Hormel flagship plant in Alston, Minnesota, led other Hormel locals in rejecting the demand. UFCW called Hormel local officers to a meeting and got them to take the Ottumwa raids. P9 prepared to strike. In August 1985, the local voted better than 10 to 1 to strike and called a boycott against Hormel. P9 rallied support from unions, farmers, and organizations active around peace, social justice, and environmental issues. The National Guard came to protect strikebreakers when 6,000 activists rallied in April 1986 to shut down the plant and authorities gassed them and arrested hundreds. UFCW President William Wynn allowed the strike, but not the support activities. He got the Minnesota AFL-CIO to ban P9 from its convention. He requested funds set for P9 support. In March 1986, he ordered the strikers back to work. They refused. Three weeks later, when they defied an injunction with a mass rally at the plant gate, Wynn trusted the local. UFCW staff took over the union hall. Wynn sent letters to every union local in the country urging trade unionists to buy Hormel products to support union brothers and sisters. A new round of restructuring swept the industry. Iowa Beef Packers, IBP, moved into port, while the Cargill and Conagra feet and grain conglomerates added meat packing to their vertically integrated food chains. When Armour Meat Packers refused concessions as Armour's owner, Greyhound, closed the plant and sold them to Conagra, which reopened them union-free, IBP began recruiting workers directly from Mexico in 1989. Vast hogs and chicken factory farms sprang up in the right-to-work south. Unions suffered big defeats. In 1983, Continental Airlines replaced strikers with new hires and 12,000 members of Amalgamated Transit Union at Greyhound took a pay cut after a seven-week strike, failed to keep buses off the road. In 1985, the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Employees and other railroad unions lost 2,000 jobs during a strike over combining jobs on the main Central Railroad and the Portland Terminal. 1986 was a very bad year. The communication workers at AT&T gave up their COLA in return for early notice of layoffs after a 26-day strike. 
TWA flight attendants went on strike over unequal pay, 5,000 lost their jobs, and the Supreme Court threw out a settlement of their discrimination lawsuit. Aluminum brick and glass workers struck Alcoa for five weeks before accepting the cuts in pay and benefits already accepted by Alcoa steel workers after a shorter strike. Greyhound workers struck again at the end of the year against more pay cuts, settled in February with a new owner and lost deferred pay during bankruptcy proceedings. The United Paper workers had already lost over 300 jobs during a 1986 strike at Boise Cascade in Maine. As Tony Mizuchi of the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers observed, workers can see you don't need a union card to hold up a white flag. Union membership dropped by 2.7 million between 1980 and 1984. By 1985, 50 AFL-CIO affiliates had fewer than 50,000 members and uncertain futures. Unions also competed over independent employee associations. For two years, beginning in 1985, AFSCME National 1199, the Communications Workers of America and the Teamsters fought over various groups of Ohio State employees. Unions made no better progress in politics. AFL-CIO strongly backed Carter's former Vice President Walter Mondale in the 1984 elections. In fact, the Federation endorsed him before the primaries. Unions activated canvassers and telephone banks and contributed a record $35 million to the candidates, but fared worse than before. Reagan beat Mondale by nearly 17 million votes overall and actually increased his support among voters from union households to 46%. The key working class Republican support was racism. For AFL-CIO leaders, the racial problem was the demand for affirmative action. Unions had been the first organizations cited for contempt in cases based on Title VII of the 1964 Go One Rights Act. When the NAACP Legal Defense Fund campaigned to make layoffs preserve minority employment goals, the union supported strict seniority. Most unions stood by when the Supreme Court gutted federal anti-discrimination laws in its 1989 Ward's Cove decision. Filipino and native Alaskan cannery workers proved that Ward's Cove Packing Company segregated its living and eating facilities, failed to post qualifications for hiring or transfer to higher paid jobs, and paid white employees more on the average. The court held that this did not prove company intent to discriminate and the workers had no legal remedy. Unions were still dealing with the racial discrimination when women took their turn. After women's organization sued the Labor Department, President Carter set hiring goals and timetables for women on federally funded construction projects in April 1978, and women began entering the building trade. They were not welcomed. By 1989, women were a little more than 6% in only one construction trade, painters, and still less than 1% of plumbers and pipe fitters. Between 1979 and 1993, the number of U.S. jobs on services increased by 38%, while jobs producing 
goods from food to fuel to manufacturing declined by 12%. Between 1979 and 1987, more than 10 million new jobs created paying $13,000 a year or less, while only 1.6 million new jobs paid more than $26,800. Between 1980 and 1993, the proportion of full-time employees at large and mid-sized companies with medical insurance fully funded by the employer fell from 71% to 37%. More and more women worked outside the home. By 1979, half of all women over 16, by 1990, almost 60%. After 1970, while European and Canadian immigration remained about the same, immigration from Asia and Latin America nearly doubled, and African immigration more than tripled. Immigrants were more diverse and many refugees from the consequences of U.S. foreign policy. Social spending was cut. The number of families living on 17000 a year or less increased by a third from 1968 to 1981 to include 92 million people, more than 34 million of them below the federal poverty line. Aid to families with dependent children fell. From an average of 477 a month in 1980 to 374 in 1992, and more people were denied disability pensions and food stamps. When 18% of the auto workforce was on layoff in 1980, almost 32% of black auto workers were out of work. Memories of Vietnam jump-started labor opposition to Reagan's foreign policies. In 1981, presidents and other officials from 24 unions formed the National Labor Committee in support of democracy and human rights in El Salvador. Run out of the New York offices of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, in 1983, a Labor Committee delegation recommended that the U.S. suspend aid until the Salvadorian regime stopped its massive violations of labor and human rights. In 1987, Lane Kirkland and AFT President Al Schenker tried to stop unions endorsing the April 25th Mobilization for Peace and Justice in Central America. But up to 50,000 trade unionists joined the Washington rally. At that year's AFL-CIO convention, delegates passed a resolution opposing U.S. support for both the Salvadorian military and the anti-communist Contra rebels in Nicaragua. The AFL-CIO affiliated Farm Labor Organizing Committee supported a Mexican union representing tomato pickers working for Campbell Soup contractors. FLOC negotiated with Campbell's U.S. contractors in 1989. FLOC set up a U.S.-Mexico exchange program to coordinate negotiations with cucumber and pickle companies. Across the border to the north, many Canadian labor activists disagreed with the AFL-CIO's rejection of labor-based political parties, resented the U.S. Union's indifference to Canadian issues, and found a Mincer-style negotiation frustrating. In 1982, Canadian UAW Chrysler's local struck to get back the 1979 COLA and won. Their 13-day strike against General Motors in 1984 won a special Canadian adjustment. They formed the Canadian 
UAW in September 1985. On a smaller scale, the Newfoundland Fishermen's Union withdrew from UFCW in 1987 after headquarters threatened to take over. According to UFCW's Earl McCurdy, the UFCW sees trade unionism 95 trade unionism a business. We see trade unionism as a democratic people's organization. In 1985, two Salinas Valley canners, Watsonville Canning and Richard Shaw, demanded a wage cut from $6.66 an hour to $4.25 and reductions in medical coverage. Teamsters Local 912, mostly Chicanos, went on strike on September 9th. Their community saw the demands as an Anglo assault on and strongly supported the strike. Unorganized cannery workers contributed to the strike fund and 3,000 supporters matched in a November rally. Shaw strikers settled for $5.85 an hour in February 1986, but the Watsonville canning workers stayed out. Their rally in March drew 4,000 supporters. The strike committee rounded up 914 of the original 1,000 strikers from as far as Texas and Mexico to outvote 848 scabs in an August decertification election. After the owner went broke, Wells Fargo Bank sold the cannery to a Teamster Council 7, offered him an agreement. When the strikers learned the contract did not return them to buy seniority or provide medical benefits to all members, they massed around the plant to keep it closed, and six women started a hunger strike. On March 11, 1987, they accepted a new contract with seniority and medical benefits intact, but with a concession on wages. When the UMW started work on a new agreement with the Bitumenous Coal Operators Association in 1984, operator A.T. Massey, owned by Fleur Corporation and Royal Dutch Shell, refused to bargain. The union went on strike in October. Miners blocked Massey operations and Trumpka brought in an organizer from the South African National Union of Miners to run a shell boycott, which got wide support among anti-apartheid activists. When the NLRB ordered Massey to bargain in December 1985, the union ended the strike, but not the boycott. In 1988, Pittston Coal Company demanded cuts in benefits work rule changes, and an into overtime pay, the right to open non-union mines. The miners worked without a contract, filed a host of unfair labor practices charges, and set up Camp Solidarity, where the Daughters of Mothers of Jones brought peace groups to train over 30,000 miners and supporters in civil disobedience. The strike began April 5, 1989, 1,700 miners and their families blocked roads to the mines. Over a thousand were arrested the first month across 11 states. 40,000 miners staged wildcat strikes and shut down non-union mines and coal-fired factories in Memorial Day solidarity actions. Pittston resumed bargaining in October and settled the last day of the year without most of the concessions. A dozen national union presidents were voted out of office in the 1980s 
but the government created the biggest upset in 1989 federal monitors for the Teamsters mandated local elections for convention delegates and nominations for national office by secret ballot to be followed by a nationwide membership vote by mail. In 1991, Teamsters held their first direct elections in decades and reform candidate Ron Carey won the presidency. The most sustained union involvement in grassroots politics came out of struggles against plant closings. Youngston, Ohio had endured the shutdown of three steel mills and the loss of 10,000 union jobs by the end of 1979, and local clergy joined with USWA officials and the National Center for Economic Alternatives in the Save Our Valley Coalition to try to buy and run the mills. President Carter declined to back this plan, so activists formed the Tri-State Conference on Steel, lobbying for extended unemployment benefits and a moratorium on foreclosures, and proposed a Steel Valley Authority that could seize plants and sell them to employee or labor community corporations. In 1983, U.S. Steel announced that its Dorothy Six blast furnace would be torn down. Tri-State convinced local officials to pay for a study that found a growing market for semi-finished steel, and SOA was incorporated by Pennsylvania in 1986, but the SVA's finance consultants insisted on retooling, then found no backers. U.S. still demolished and buried Dorothy Six that spring. SUH had some success. When the Continental Ralston Purina closed Brown Bakery in 1989. Community church leaders and city officials joined bakery, confectionery, and tobacco workers, local, and SHU to fund a study that discovered that Pittsburgh had become the largest metropolitan market with no general bakery. With support from local grocers who worried about fresh bread supplies in wintertime, City Pride Corporation started in 1990 and began production in 1992 on a new facility with 120 former Braun employees, now City Pride workers slash owners, but the region lost more than 100,000 manufacturing jobs over the 1980s. Beyond local politics, the Democrat-Republican duopoly was hard to crack in Vermont. Union rank and filer supported longtime activist Bernie Sanders for mayor of Burlington in 1981. When he ran for an open seat in Congress in 1988, the state AFL-CIO endorsed the Democrat and ran his campaign. The Republican barely beat Sanders, and the Democrat came in a poor third. In the 1990 rematch, local union leaders unanimously lined up behind Sanders, helping make him the first independent socialist member of Congress in more than 60 years. Building services had been S. EIU's original base, and the union started a Justice for Janitors campaign in 1985 to reorganize the industry. In Los Angeles, membership in SEIU Local 399 had fallen below 2000 after an open shop drive by real estate and development companies. In 1990, 800 workers at the American Racing Equipment mostly first-generation Latino immigrants struck for three days to get union recognition.
share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.